Thanks, Maureen. And thank you all for coming. I'm uh, so impressed that there is such a good number here this evening. I counted about 48 people here. (laughs) Thursday night is beefing up. (laughs) Or maybe it's the topic. Maybe all of you came because you have hindrances in your life. And this may be the path for finding a way around hindrances. In any case, thank you so much. It's such a joy. Uh, I did an instruction this morning uh, for a student that had never meditated before. And her observation was, you know, it's easier with other people. And isn't that the truth? Uh, There is a facility, an openness, an energy, I don't know what it is, uh, but it's just true for me that uh, being with others of like mind and like commitment is very rich. So tonight we're considering the fourth of the hindrances. Uh, the Buddhist tradition, as we all know, is rich with various lists and the hindrances is one of the richest So tonight we'll consider specifically the fourth, which is restlessness and regret, often referred to as those two. Kind of incorporates anxiety, uh, general disquiet, discomfort, um, lots of related topics, but we'll focus mostly on restlessness and regret. So in prior sessions, On the hindrances, the Dharma talks have covered the first three. And I'll just give a quick little review of those first three, especially for those that may not have attended each of the first three. And then we'll do the fourth. And then coming up next week is the last. So if you hang in until next week, you will have covered them all. Be free of hindrances. (laughs) The last one is, I think, possibly the best most rich, most uh, hindering, and that is doubt. So I encourage you to come next week and see how it all relates and comes together in the topic of doubt. But just to cover the first, traditionally the teachings that have come from 2,500 years ago have referred to the hindrance of desire, of lust, of craving, uh, particularly sensual desire. And it's interesting to think about that because in our society, desire isn't a bad thing. In fact, uh, it's sold a lot of cars and beer and other things. Uh, Desire is something that's just kind of, we're steeped in it. Uh, Fashion advertising. Um, you know, I I have a beautiful teenage stepdaughter at home, 17 years old, and she is so concerned about having the right look, you know, hot enough, but not too hot and so forth. All that relates to kind of, you know, creating the right level of desire. Well, what the teachings tell us is that it's not desire itself that is the hindrance but the hindrance is our attachment to it. So using the Vipassana meditative awareness space, 
we can hold lots of desire. We can be aware of lots of desire and not be driven by it, not be consumed, burned in the fire of that desire. So sensual desire is the first. Second is uh, a, a counterbalance. The first two and the second and uh, the third and the fourth sort of counterbalance. So uh, desire, attraction, uh, wanting is balanced by the second one, which is ill will or aversion or avoidance. So you can kind of think of desire on the one hand and ill will or aversion. Ill will, that sort of spontaneous wish that things don't go too well for people. Or that a a certain organization stumbles. Uh, I noticed in the news today, one of my dear favorite organizations, Intel, is getting a lot of publicity. And people are saying, oh, they're stumbling. And, uh, you know, we, we're, we're pretty intolerant of uh, any sign of weakness in this society. When I started working with Intel as a consultant in uh, 1983, they were about 70,000 people. And now they're up at 110,000 and they're going to lose 10,000. So they're going to be back to 100,000. So is that good or not good? Is that stumbling or not stumbling? I don't know. But ill will uh, comes. You know, who's at fault? Who messed up? And what can be done about it? So the third of the hindrances is um, often thought of as sort of a sleepy state. So neither quickly attracted or quickly repelled, sometimes referred to as sloth and torpor. This comes from uh, the translations that were done of the traditional Buddhist teachings in the 1880s, 90s, early 1900s. Very Victorian usage. And so we hear about right speech. And we hear about sloth and torpor. Uh, These terms sound old to us nowadays. Sloth and torpor, the third hindrance, may be more well understood as a lack of alertness or not being fully present. Those are terms that we can relate to a little bit more. Not showing up. Not being fully here. I think about conversations I've had when I've been distracted and I'm sort of listening for the time that I can get my thoughts in. And, uh, you know, that's a sign of not being fully present, sloth and torpor. So tonight, R&R, restlessness, regret. You might have been thinking that we'd solve these problems tonight. But actually, I'm going to put forward an idea that the hindrances are our friends. 
They are to be embraced when they are found. And we'll talk a little bit more why that may be the case later on. So restlessness and regret. The Pali word for restlessness and for regret give us a little bit of a clue as to what was being thought about. Pali is now a dead language, but it was the language that uh, held the teachings that came from 2,500 years ago, related, uh, associated, attributed to the Buddha. And when these teachings were first written, they were written on palm leaves several 300 years after the original teachings. By that time, the Pali language was the appropriate language, and uh, in that location in India, that's what uh, was used to capture that teaching that had been passed by oral tradition. So sometimes it's helpful to look at the Pali etymology. The Pali word for restlessness means to cover over. The word is nivarana, to cover over. So the sense of this loss of our self, the loss of our freedom, the loss of, of our ability to see, all of that covered over. The second term is udacha, Pali word that means shaking or quaking. So to be covered over by shaking or quaking, it's kind of the sense. Restlessness in our lives is uh, a little bit difficult to get our uh, sense of because our lives are so made of it. It's like the water that we swim in. Our society reveres restlessness. One of my childhood heroes is Thomas Edison. And he's well known for saying, um, show me a man that's not restless and I'll show you a failure. So in our society, we, we think of restlessness as being that agitation that gets us moving, that gets us getting things done, and we love to get things done. So the teaching is that we don't have to be doing all the time. And in fact, if we just mindlessly do, we don't have our own freedom and we may be robbing others of their freedom. So restlessness, that agitated state, the anxiety state, it really comes from the very origins of the Buddha's teachings. The first teachings that the Buddha gave are in the tradition, the Four Noble Truths. The first of those being that there is unsatisfactoriness in our lives. Our lives are made of it. Count on it. It's natural. It's built in. In modern terminology, it's hardwired that we will be looking for something that is beyond what we have. 
or we will want to be someone that is not who we are. And I think that there are many people who would make the argument that if we didn't have that restlessness, we probably wouldn't have flush toilets. Uh, we probably wouldn't have the transistor. Uh, you know, a lot of the things that we like in modern life came from people that were un, in a place of unsatisfactoriness, wanted to get something that was better. So let's just affirm again that the point is not to uh, do away with restlessness. That's not the teaching. The teaching is not to be captured by it, not to be caught by it, not to be clinging to the restlessness. I mentioned Intel. When I worked with Intel for about eight years, I got to know a number of vice presidents and we had retreats where we would go away and there'd be uh, an opportunity for a couple, three days for the vice presidents to train Intel employees into kind of the culture and the traditions and uh, how to behave at Intel. And uh, I remember one of the presentations, it was a slide presentation, and the first slide that came on the screen was of this particular vice president sitting at in his swimming pool at home. He was on one of those mattresses that has a, a back brace on it, a floating mattress, and he was out in the middle of his swimming pool with a swimming suit on, with his laptop on, wirelessly working away. <laughs> Talk about restlessness. No rest for the weary. <laughs> and that actually, it was a little bit of the culture that uh, was promoted there. You know, and he said, you know, this wasn't Saturday morning. This was Sunday morning. No rest, even on the Sabbath. So restlessness, the water that we swim in in this society. How do we stay different or how do we stay separate from the clinging, from the grabbing, the wanting to do, to move out, to be active? The traditional teachings have six ways and so we'll just quickly touch on these six ways. First of all, mindfulness. Isn't that always the answer for everything? I mean, <laughs> you name it. Mindfulness is a good thing. Whatever the cause, whatever the hindrance. The actual meaning of hindrance is to put us behind. Hinder, hind to put us behind, to put us back from what we want or where we want to go. So mindfulness is that capacity we have to notice what's happening, to notice the, the grasping, the clinging, to notice the urge to, to move, to be active, and then to make a choice. When we sit in a meditative posture, 
It's very easy to want to scratch the ear. You got a little itch there or, ooh, I've got a pain in my knee. Wouldn't it be nice to just kind of shift around? The teaching around meditation is to let those be, to experience whatever the stimulus is in your body and to not give into it right away. I'm not saying don't scratch that itch, don't shift, but I'm just saying notice the urge, notice the urge and hold that space and then make a decision. Is it appropriate? Shall I scratch this itch now? Shall I not? So it's bringing to mind, bringing to awareness that we do have a choice. When we're sitting in meditative posture, the choices are in a way more simple, more very uh, idealized. We're not concerned about making a living or whatever, but we're just kind of being with what is there in our mind, in our body. So the hindrance of restlessness, that urge to act, mindfully we hold it. Mindfully, we notice it. We don't give in right away. We experience the feeling, the sensation in our body. And then we choose. And it's a process that strengthens our ability to not be driven elsewhere. So in in sitting meditative posture, we're really building the muscles the the nerves that allow us to choose, to not be captured, to not be completely identified and consumed by whatever urge comes. So those are the first three, actually. Mindfulness, hold it in the body, sense it, have that sensation in the body, and then choose a nice process to help us deal with restlessness. So there's some other classic teachings about restlessness. But before I do those, I'd like to just say a little bit on behalf of regret, the other part of the fourth hindrance. I don't want to regret at the end of this talk not having spoken completely about the subject. (laughs) Maureen told me that you had some fun with the previous hindrances. So uh, if we can have fun with a hindrance, we'll try tonight. Yeah, regret is that statement of I wish it were. I wish it were. There's a poem that I really love. It's an Emerson poem. It's very short. It says, of all the world, of all the words uttered by women and men, the saddest is these. It might have been. The saddest is these. It might have been. That regret. In our lives, we have lots to regret. 
how do we function? I mean, we, we're making choices all the time. We're, um, I was just with a group yesterday <clears throat> in my work with Kara. I do group process for people that have had a tragedy or a loss. And this was a group process meeting that I had with a group of people that drive school buses. And they had one of their school bus drivers die over the summer. He was a youngish man, well known to many. Uh, many reported him being a joker, fun to be with, always poking fun, uh, reliable and trustworthy. Somebody that they really enjoyed having as part of their group. And late one night on July 7th, he was shot in the back of the head. He had one hand tied so that he was restrained and he was shot in the back of the head. The police have investigated and have no clues. And uh, it's likely to be one of those experiences that we don't have a resolution for. So I was in this room of regret. People had so much regret uh, thinking about the last time that they had seen this man. What had they said? Why hadn't they said that they really cared for him? That they appreciated him? That he was a valued member of the group? The uh, manager of the group said over and over, why didn't I tell him more how much I depended on him? He had been driving a bus for, I think it was 17 years. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to find people that will do a job for 17 years and people that you care about and want to be with. And so they were, there was all of this regret. It was so touching that with this kind of sudden death, there really is no way, there, there, there's no recourse you can't go back. You can't correct or make up for what you didn't do. And it's hard. It, it, it's hard. It's a, it's a heaviness on the heart to not have been able to say goodbye and to say what was necessary or appropriate. So regret is something that is regrettable. It's it's awful. It's uh, it's it's just it's it's that kind of feeling. Why can't I just go back and and redo this? If I could just redo this. So regret is the the tool that can help us make amends, make some changes. I've been, <clears throat> over my life, <clears throat> I've had lots of issues with people that have had addictions. My father was uh, alcoholic, and my mother was an alcoholic, and I had an uncle that was an alcoholic, had a brother-in-law that was a cocaine addict, uh, I myself 
have all of those tendencies. It's sitting on the cushion. I swear I can see how you can fall into those consumption patterns. It's it's part of this wanting to have things be better. And regret is one of those ones that we just we do anything to have it be better. The solution possibly is not that we can go back, but as we go forward, we can be clear. We can have the space, the mental space, the awareness that we can touch that person that means something to us and say, you know, I just want to let you know that you're really important to me. I care about you. To, to make those preparatory statements, declarations, connections, that if one of us dies, at least we'll be complete. Stephen Levine, one of my wonderful heroes and teachers, who started the Hospice Caring Project in Santa Cruz, has written many books. One of the most important, I think, is One Year to Live. Let's just see the hands of the number of people that have read One Year to Live. So, a few. It's a wonderful practice-oriented book. And the idea, of course, is that we use a meditative approach to uh, creating a sense that we have one year to live. And so in living a year as though we really only have one year to live. So that heightened awareness. It's actually something that he took from the traditional teachings. There's a practice called the Marana Sati practice, which has to do with hanging with death, being with death, going to graveyards, going to charnel grounds, uh, reading about death, thinking about death, not from the sense of stimulating a morbid um, craving, but from the sense of realizing the impermanence of life, that all relationships will eventually end either by death or by estrangement, that all buildings will eventually come down. All insight meditation centers will eventually either move or change or go out of business or who knows what. Life is full of impermanence. And so this sense of being with the reality of that heightens our urge to make amends or to be clear so that if one of our colleagues, companions, close friends, relatives dies suddenly, as this bus driver did, that we're clean. We're, we, have, we have been with them completely. It's a good practice. comes from the 12-step program. That's uh, where I first got connected with it. Making amends. Finding those who we may have harmed in our life or who may have done harm to us. 
and being clear with them, forgiving ourselves and forgiving them. What a wonderful practice to avoid regret. I had the experience one time of having an interaction with a man who came on to me sexually. And I was, at that time, I was a teenager. And uh, all I knew was that it just wasn't appropriate. This was not anywhere I could be. And so I said something. I couldn't, I can't even remember what words they were, but I'm sure they were intense and left and never saw him again. And this was a person that I had a close relationship with. I really cared about. We we shared lots of long walks and talks and and it was so hard. It was heavy on my heart, but I just didn't know how to handle this feeling of horror, of aversion. Later on, about 25 years, I did a 12-step program, actually Al-Anon, because of one of my relatives that had been working with an addiction. And so came across the step of making amends. And I was sort of going through my inventory of who I should make amends to. And I kind of thought, I don't have anybody to make amends to. I'm, you know, I've led a good life. I've done things pretty, you know, right? I mean, maybe little tiny things that could have been improved, but no, nothing big. And then I thought about this guy. And I realized that that was a horrible experience. It was something that I just, I felt so incomplete and regretful about. And this was 25 years later, but I got on the phone and I tracked this guy down and he was in a hospital in Illinois. And I said, oh, I, I'm so grateful that we could talk. I wanted to tell you, uh, you know, that I just felt so bad about that experience. And, you know, I hope that there isn't anything lingering for you that is regretful or harsh because I really care about you and I cared about you at the time, but I just didn't know how to deal with the experience. And he said, oh, my God, I can't tell you. I've thought about this every day for the last 25 years. And it's such a relief to have you talk to me and, you know, to be in relationship. And so we, we had a nice chat and talked a little bit about what he had been up to and so on. And then I hung up and I thought about him about three weeks later. And I thought, boy, that was that was a great experience. I'm really glad I took the time and the initiative to do that. So I'm going to call him up again. I called up and I was told by somebody at the hospital that he had just died. So regret, I'm left with some regret, but I'm not left with it all. And I have sort of held that as a touchstone for the rest of my life to be complete, to be complete. Don't 
store things in the closet. One of the students that I was teaching meditation to, we were doing the practice of bringing your awareness into your body and noticing all of the body parts. And at the end, she said, oh, I was so agitated. It was very uncomfortable. And I said, what was it? And she said, oh, when I was feeling my thighs and my calves, my lower legs, I, I, I just had all this restlessness and it was so intense. And then she said, you know, I think it relates to when I was a child and I was molested when I was a child. And she said, I, I don't want, you know, that's, that's not something I can handle right now. I don't want to go there. And I said, good, good to be aware, good to, to know, to have boundaries on what you can handle and what you can't handle. And encourage you to continue using your mindfulness, to be aware, to notice that there is some energy there, there is some difficulty there. Just lightly touch it and let it go. But don't avoid it. Don't, uh, don't hold it away from you. Just realize that this is something that is part of you, just like being Italian or being Californian or being six feet one tall. These are, this is a characteristic of yours that you'll always have. Hopefully, over time, you'll learn to settle with it, to be more comfortable with it. And hopefully, in the long run, you'll be able to make contact either just with yourself or with the other people involved that you can deal with regret. Our fourth hindrance, restlessness and regret. So there is a lot involved in this mindfulness practice. These things come up. We become aware of the impermanence of life, of the harshness of losing relationships, of the harshness of having closed our hearts. And so the privilege that we have in a meditative space is to use our mindfulness to hold this, to be aware of it, to gradually build awareness around it. Something that's very fresh and harsh, like a new awareness of a molestation as a child, takes a lot of time and a lot of sensitivity, speaking with others, working with it, But don't we all have something like that? We all have something that's unsatisfactory that causes us to wish to be someone else or to move somewhere else. What a blessing it is just to be able to sit, just to be with who we are, just right, without changing, without adjusting. So the antidote to restlessness, mindfulness, experiencing it in the body, making a choice. Also, the antidote to regret, 
mindfulness, be aware of it, experience it in the body, make a choice. And this is our practice. It's a practice where there's discomfort. Let's not be surprised or amazed about the discomfort, but let's be compassionate with ourselves. This is the state of being a human being. We have wants, desires. We fall asleep. We fall into sloth and torpor. We have aversions. These things are built in. Our ancestors a thousand generations ago, 500 generations ago, they had to survive by being restless, by moving toward that which is more satisfactory. So we've learned it. It's become a part of ourselves. But it doesn't have to run our lives. So, a couple of other traditional teachings, and then I'd like to stop and see if there's an opportunity for us to have some dialogue, have some sharing around these topics, restlessness, regret. A couple of the other traditional teachings, these come from 2,500 years ago. They sound modern. That's one of the things I love about Buddhist traditions and Buddhist teachings is that they can be so fresh and so modern. So one of them is to associate with people that are at peace in themselves. So if we find that restlessness and regret, anxiety, are issues for us, it's a blessing to be able to find people who have that calmness, that settledness about them. I just It's one of the things I love about IMC is hanging out with this bunch of people here. I have never met so many just settled people that aren't trying to sell me something. They're not trying to convince me of something. They're not trying to make something happen against all odds but there's sort of a a sense of nurturing and and helping things come to life, just like we do in a garden, gentle nurturing. So associating with people that have a sense of peace, equanimity. Second, finding that in ourselves that promotes that sense of peace and equanimity. For me, I love family, family times. Uh, Fixing a dinner together is peaceful. It's just, it just settles my heart, settles my life. So for me, it's relationship or sometimes walking in nature. So what is it for you? What is that part of your life that helps put you into a space of acceptance, of gentleness, of peace, of compassion for yourself and compassion for all life? 
when the traditional teachings were written, they said, find older people because they tend to be a little bit more settled than younger people. So I just had my 62nd birthday yesterday. So I kind of feel like I'm, uh, I'm getting there. And, uh, and I do feel more settled. It's amazing. I, I look back on the last 10 years of my life and I just feel it's such a blessing to not be so caught up in grabbing for what I was 10 years ago. So, I have a short reading of Mother Teresa that I love and I'll just leave us with. And at the end of the reading, we'll just sit for about a minute and just kind of Let ourselves settle. Let the restlessness die away. And then I'll ring the bell and then we'll have a chance to talk. So this is Mother Teresa on restlessness. We need to find God and he cannot be found in noise and restlessness. God is the friend of silence. See how nature, trees, flowers, grass grows in silence. See the stars. See the moon and the sun, how they move in silence. We need silence to be able to touch other souls and to touch our own soul. Mother Teresa. Well, I thank you for being on that half of the continuum here. And uh, love to hear thoughts, observations, what it is that puts you into that space of peace and comfort, the antidote to restlessness and regret.
<laughs> I draw. I draw, and it's, it's, it's almost as if it's, I tend to draw my food. I tend to draw things I've picked up at the farmer's market. And it's almost as if you breathe with the thing that you're drawing. It's just that you follow the anatomy of something. And when I've been doing it regularly, it, it leads to this appreciation in my life. It's like I can be stopped dead by a crumbled paper bag in the ground with how beautiful it is. It's like, oh, look at that. Look at the way that's folded. Look at how it's dark over there. It's like the, the, it, it sort of instates, infuses my life with a little bit of awe in, in ordinary moments. And it's something that, that makes something, something like this bell just beautiful if you're with it because you draw it. Yeah, to be fully present with what's there. Now, Westminster has this saying that if we really clearly saw what was happening in our lives and in life, we'd be laughing continuously. And I think it's that same thing, you know, uh, that, that sense of just falling in love with that bell. That's a fantastic bell or the bag that's on the ground crumpled up. Or that scrap of paper that you pick up and throw in the trash. You know? That's it. That, that full awareness space is our antidote to restlessness and regret. Good example. Thank you. Um, I moved to a small house a couple of years ago, and um, there are only really three houses on my block where people like to garden. The neighbors on my right who are in their mid-80s and the neighbors on my left who are in their mid-90s and me. (laughs) And we have a great time sharing our gardening. And um, what I've discovered is that it really doesn't matter how small your garden is or how large But um, you can have your flowers to attract butterflies and bees and and just enjoy the beauty of the presence of all the living creatures that come. And and it's just so wonderful just enjoying them coming and... um, and clipping your roses to keep them growing and, um, you know, just keeping everything the way it needs to be. And um, I just love to garden. I just love to have my hands in the soil, and I just love to breathe everything and enjoy every moment of it. I can see by the smile on your face as you say that. that (laughs) There's the peace, the, the connection. Yeah, that's great. What is your name? Linda. Linda. Thanks, Linda. Another good example. Kelly. I grew up in a similar family structure. Congratulations. Of, Thank you. And let's just tell this tale. <laughs> <laughs> Did lots of Al-Anon. Um, and for me, um, 
it's spending time with my uh, two-year-old daughter, Ariel, and not having recreated this historical legacy um, with either my husband or myself, and um, being at a midlife point and and being with a two-year-old and having had a childhood where I was checked out a lot to survive or I was on alert to, to be in survival mode, to now be in a, in a family construct where I can be really present with her as she's just exploding with uh, all sorts of wonderful things, talking and everything's new and everything's exciting. It's, I get to watch her and it's almost like I get to experience it for the first time as well. So it's helping me to heal lots of the regret that I thought I had previously in my uh, recovery work, but it's doing a lot more healing to be able to be a child and a parent all at the same time. So that's my example. Wow, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, this uh, lady that I taught meditation that I used earlier as an illustration that had the childhood difficulty I said, you know, the one thing to remember is it's never too late to have a happy childhood. And you're demonstrating that. <laughs> 47. Hey, it's never too late. <laughs> wow, thanks. That's a great example. What a blessing that Ariel has the, the freedom to kind of choose her own hindrances. You know, she doesn't have to <laughs> take your hindrances. <laughs> It's been a, <clears throat> it's a wonderful evening, and I thank you all. Uh, I did bring one other thing to read, and so I think I'll do that and maybe just have us end in silence, and then I'll just say a few words about sharing the merit, which is a tradition that we like to follow. It started at least 2,500 years ago, a way of kind of um, appreciating how valuable it is to share the Dharma and the teachings and to have togetherness while we do that. So this is said to be the words of the Buddha. It may or may not be because we know that they weren't written down until 300 years after he may have spoken them. But the tradition is strong and the teaching is strong. So whether they literally came from that man historically or whether they have come down to us through the tradition, I think they still have value. So this is a simile that comes to us from one of the scriptures. If there is water in a pot stirred by the wind, agitated, swaying, and producing waves, a man with a normal faculty of sight could not properly recognize and see the image of his own face. In the same way, when one's mind is possessed by restlessness and remorse, overpowered by restlessness and remorse, 
captured by restlessness and remorse, one cannot properly see the escape. Then one does not properly understand one's own welfare, nor that of another, nor that of both of you. Also, you may have memorized things in the past, a long time ago. If your mind is not clear, if you're not at peace and settled, those things do not come into one's mind. The teachings, the learnings, the wisdoms do not readily come. It's hard to speak about those, even though memorized and held for a long time. So just as there is water in a pot stirred by the wind, when one's mind is possessed by restlessness and remorse, one cannot properly see. When the water is still, one sees clearly. One knows one's own's own best welfare and one knows the best welfare of others. One has achieved freedom and clear living. From the Samyutta Nikaya, 46.55. So just a reminder that these teachings have come to us from a long time away. We have them for the moment, and it's a blessing to be able to share them and pass them on. We didn't derive them. We're not going to be the end of them. It's a process. Sharing in that process is a privilege. And as we open our hearts to ourselves, having self-compassion, open our hearts to others, may the value and the wisdom of the teachings come through us in our lives and go to those that we touch. And may we all be more free, more clear, less restless, more at peace as we find our true nature. Thank you all so much. Enjoy the full moon tonight. This is the full moon of the corn, it's called. So tomorrow night we have a full moon celebration, but the actual full moon is tonight. So have a look up in the sky as you leave tonight. A special event. Thank you so much.